0: Ancestor by number one New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 425. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Hope you're hanging in there, folks. Don't worry. Things will get better, eventually, thousands of years from now, for Rocks. Consequences on this week's show, but first, a hundred-word story. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Try writing one yourself. Post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. We might pick yours for the show. This week's Drabble comes to us from Lawrence Simon, and it's called Freeze That Way. Here goes. Mommy warned me that if I made a face, it would freeze that way. For the last time, said Mommy, don't do it. So I made a face. Mommy saw it, and she picked up her remote and clicked freeze. I was unable to move. Mommy had frozen me in place. I could still see and think and feel Mommy's screwdriver removing the screws from my faceplate. She pulled it off, disconnected the power and sensor cable, and set my face on the shelf. I warned you, said Mommy, shoving my body into the closet and slamming the door shut. Our feature story this week, The Bodies, by Tim Pratt. By day, Tim works as senior editor at Locus Magazine, where, among other things, he writes the obituaries. He lives in Berkeley, California, with his wife, Heather Shaw, and their son, River. His fiction and poetry have appeared in the Best American Short Stories, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, The Mammoth Book of Best New Horror, Strange Horizons, Realms of Fantasy, Asimov's, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and more. His most recent novels are the Space Opera Axiom Trilogy, The Wrong Stars, The Dreaming Stars, and The Forbidden Stars, all out by Penguin Random House. Which isn't very helpful, I know, considering how many random penguin homes there are out there. But that's all I've got. He writes a news story every month for patrons at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Pratt. I'm a Patreon supporter of Tim myself, and I assure you, it's well worth a change. This story, in fact, first appeared in Tim's Patreon. And so, without further ado, we bring you The Bodies by Tim Pratt. Finding that first body wasn't so bad, though it rattled me at the time. The dead man was curled up on a piece of cardboard in the alleyway I cut through sometimes on my way to the good coffee shop, and I would have assumed he was just sleeping rough if he hadn't been on his back, eyes open to the gray morning sky, lips flecked with bits of whatever he'd thrown up and choked on. The flecks were still wet. When I got close enough to realize he was dead, my legs went weak and I crouched down to keep from falling and had to steady myself with one hand on the damp asphalt to keep from tipping over. I could smell the acid tang of his vomit, or imagined I could, and I started breathing through my mouth too fast. I was talking to myself too, a litany of fuck, oh shit, oh no, but I got my phone out and looked at it. Nine-one-one, right? Except... Was this an emergency? He wasn't going to get better. Whatever. The operator could chastise me if they thought it wasn't really that urgent. I dialed, and the very calm dispatcher answered, and I said, I just found a dead body. I followed her instructions to check for vitals, my hands trembling as I confirmed the obvious. I waited on the line and listened to the scream of ambulances and fire engines and cop cars approaching. Their arrival didn't take long. I was downtown, and there were police and fire stations and hospitals all within a mile. The paramedics rushed in, very fast, but pretty soon they started to move slowly instead. A uniformed cop took my statement and my number and address, and we agreed it was sad, a real tragedy. Eventually, he flipped his notebook closed. Is that it? I said. Thanks for calling it in, he said. A lot of people would have just walked by. We'll be in touch if we need anything else. I was dismissed, and I drifted away toward the coffee shop I'd been heading for in the first place. I thought about dead bodies. His wasn't the first I'd seen. Apart from everything else, I'd been to my share of funerals. The first was a teenage cousin who died when I was just eleven, and I remembered his body in the coffin, incongruously wearing sunglasses. It took me a long time to piece together what had happened, suicide by gunshot, and the bullet had destroyed his eyes beyond the abilities of the mortician's cosmetic arts. A high school friend who died in a single car accident, she was the first girl who ever held my hand and said she loved me, but that's a different story. And a great aunt, and my great grandmother, and a few others over the years. But funerals, no matter how sad or tragic, are different. You expect to see a body there. Even someone like my mom, who's been a paramedic and seen dead bodies on countless occasions, is at least prepared for the possibility of confronting death when she goes to work. It's in the nature of the job. Stumbling on a body unexpectedly is a whole different experience, a sledgehammer reminder of mortality, an earthquake that shakes apart your day. I sat in the coffee shop, looking at my phone, thinking of posting online about what I'd found, and decided it would be too ghoulish. It occurred to me I'd gotten off lightly, in some ways. I knew a few people who'd found dead bodies unexpectedly over the years. Some of them had found their friends or relatives, and that was brutal. "'and I'd also known two people who found strangers dead, like I had, "'one a murder, another suicide. "'They'd both taken their experiences much harder than I was taking mine. "'In high school, my friend of a friend, Eric, "'one of those jaded, seen-everything-done-everything sorts of seventeen-year-olds, "'unflappable and eternally unimpressed, "'had gone out to a gravel pit to smoke weed "'and found a murdered woman on the ground, "'dressed in nothing but her underwear, "'covered in dried blood and flies.' This was in the days before cell phones, so he'd gone to the nearest residential street, pounded on the doors until someone answered and called the police. Even twenty-five years later, I could vividly remember Eric on the local TV news, his voice shaking, tears on his cheeks, as he described what he'd discovered. I'd never seen him affected by anything, but that experience shattered him, at least for a time." As I sat in the cafe, I tried to look Eric up and to find the details of the crime, but I couldn't remember his last name or where exactly he'd found the body, and the internet was too vast and full of tragedy to narrow things down. In college, my ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend, Ken, opened a practice room in the music building and found a girl inside who'd hung herself. I wasn't friends with him, and at the time our mutual connection hated my guts because I hadn't acquitted myself well in our breakup, but I heard enough about the situation to know Ken was a devastated insomniac most of the time, and tortured by nightmares when he could sleep. Even all these years later, I was sure Eric and Ken still thought about the people they'd found. I imagined the memories intruding into happy moments, birthday parties, backyard barbecues, symphonies. They'd seen ugly death up close, without the opportunity or training to erect any defense beforehand, and it seemed likely to me that the experience had allowed shadows to creep into their hearts. I knew how that felt. Death would always be a little closer to them than it would be to most people, a rain cloud above their heads that might lift and lower, but would never entirely dissipate. I was in better shape than they'd been. I'd never stumbled on an unexpected victim of violence. I decided I'd probably shake off the morning's discovery. I'd shaken off worse. This body would become a story I told sometimes, and then a story I never told, and then a story I forgot. I believed that until the next day when I found another body. I wasn't the only one who had found her, but I was the first. I pushed the elevator button in the train station concourse, and when the door slid open, there she was, slumped against the back wall, neck at a broken angle, blood all down the front of her tank top and spattered on the thighs of her yoga pants. I took a step back. The blood was still oozing out of her, toward the doors, and one of the people waiting to board with me screamed and ran. The station police ran over and started yelling at everyone to stand clear, and another cop hammered toward the stairs to the street, presumably to see if he could find the assailant. I stumbled away in a daze, going up the stairs myself with other people, all chattering. Did you see that? Was she dead? Oh my god, the blood! The blood! "'but I was quiet. "'What were the odds? "'What were the odds? Two bodies in two days. "'I walked the few blocks home to my little in-law unit. "'The place is tiny, but my landlady in the main house "'let me take over the backyard "'and turn it into a garden five years ago, "'and playing in the dirt became my chief hobby. "'Sadly, she'd been in and out of the hospital for months "'and was about to move into hospice care.' I thought, at least I won't be the one to find her body. I wondered what her heirs would do with the house when she died. It was famously difficult to evict people in Berkeley, but I still worried. I probably couldn't afford another place with the way rents were rising these days. I sat in a lawn chair out back beside plots of turned soil and drooping late summer tomato plants and looked at my phone. There were a few posts and tweets about the dead woman on the local social media channels, but nothing I hadn't seen for myself. After a while, I mindlessly went about my usual chores, washing dishes and taking out the trash and dragging the cans to the curb, occasionally checking for more news or details. She'd been stabbed repeatedly, no assailant identified. Police were checking security footage. Some people said the cameras in that elevator hadn't worked for months, though. And that was all. The next day, the elevator was closed, covered in police tape, and two days later, it was open again and smelled strongly of bleach. I found the third body a day after that. I had coffee with a guy who wanted to make one of my horror stories into a film. Of course, he didn't have any money for an option or very much experience making movies, but he'd shown me a short film of his online that was pretty good, so I'd agreed to meet him. My agents wouldn't be thrilled with me giving someone an option for a dollar, but it wasn't like Hollywood was clamoring for my work, and you never knew. He was young and nervous, and he wanted me to geek out with him about old George Romero and Hammer horror films, but I'd never been into either of those really, so it was kind of awkward. He bought the coffee, though, and we parted with an understanding and a promise from me to call my agents about him. Afterward, I decided to take a walk and try to remember what it was like to feel hopeful. I ended up on the campus of the big local university, with its acres of paths winding past statues and old stone buildings, and invasive eucalyptus trees. There was a place I liked on the edge of the campus that was pretty secluded, with a steep bank leading down to the creek, where I went sometimes to think and watch the water. I crunched through the leaves toward the spot, and then stopped on the bank. There was a dead college girl, half in the water, face down in the creek, legs awkwardly pointed up the bank. She was in disarray, skirt pulled up, underwear crumpled nearby. The back of her head was a hole, and the rock that had made the hole was next to her, partly submerged in the water, bits of blood and hair still stuck on the top. I thought of the girl Eric had found. She'd been naked, except for her underwear around her ankles, if the rumors were to be believed. "'Eric had refused to talk about it. "'I knew I should call someone, but I was afraid. "'I'd found one dead body earlier this week, "'and the cops had a record of that. "'If I showed up at another death scene, first one on the spot, "'would they start to wonder about me? "'They could easily find out I'd been there "'when the woman was killed in the elevator, too. "'There was sure to be security footage in the concourse. Three corpses in a week would get any detective "'wondering if I was more than just unlucky.' The ground was covered in leaf litter, and I hadn't left any discernible tracks, but I walked out carefully just the same, and I did my best to walk the streets home like I hadn't just seen the thing I'd seen. On my last date, before it was even a date, we talked about dead people. Sort of. Really, we talked about ghosts. We stood outside the bar, her smoking a cigarette, me just enjoying her company, a pleasure I hadn't expected. She'd asked me for a light when I passed by, and since I smoke weed, I had a lighter on me, and since she was pretty, I obliged. We got to chatting, and I did the humble brag, oh, I write stories, thing. And she asked what kind, and I said fantasy and horror mostly, and she said, I just love ghost stories. After a bit of that, she asked me if I believed in ghosts. No, I said, most people who write horror stories are skeptics. I'm not sure what I think. Her eyes were dark and far away. I don't really think I believe in ghosts, but I definitely believe in consequences. Maybe people who see ghosts are seeing them for a reason, even if the ghosts aren't real. I've been thinking about what she said lately. I think I could handle ghosts. I could convince myself they aren't real. The bodies are definitely real. I found the fourth body when I was at a bar downtown drinking whiskey with my friend Gary, who's also a writer, but far more successful than I am. He just writes books and screenplays these days, while I have to supplement with ad copy and editing and book doctoring for the kind of aggressively unteachable amateurs who really need a book mortician instead. When I came into the bar, he said, "'Whoa, you decided to upgrade the scruff into a full beard, huh?' I scratched at my still fairly new beard for a second and then stopped myself. Yeah, well, time for a change. Beards are like push-up bras for men, he said, delivering the line like he'd written it when I knew for a fact someone else had posted it and gotten millions of shares on social media. I still wouldn't date you, but you're creeping closer to the ballpark. I'm honored. I wasn't. We drank and talked. I didn't tell him about the bodies. One body, maybe I would have, but three was too much. He mostly complained about his boyfriend, and I thought at least you have someone, and tried not to think about the last date, let alone my last relationship. I mostly tried not to think about women I'd seen dead in the elevator or by the creek. You ought to get back out there, man, Gary said. This city's full of beautiful, smart, interesting women, if you like that sort of thing. You do make having a relationship sound super appealing. I'm missing out on so much arguing and drama. The dead woman in the elevator might have been beautiful in life. The college girl, too. Had they been smart? Had they been interesting? Now they were nothing. A fog of black smoke wanted to envelop my brain. I've got to hit the facilities. Order me another? Gary raised his glass in acknowledgement. I went down the long hallway to the pair of any gender bathrooms, neither occupied. Both doors open a crack, and I pushed into the nearer one. There was a man on his knees, his head in the toilet bowl, unmoving. I refused to accept the obvious conclusion. I told myself he'd probably just gotten drunk and come in to throw up and pass out. I approached him and said, Hey, are you okay? I reached out to shake his shoulder and wake him up. That was the second dead body I'd touched in ten days, and the fourth I'd seen. He felt like meat, not a person. I tried to lift his head out of the water, thinking vague thoughts about the CPR I'd never learned how to administer, and his body fell over onto the tile, his head hitting with a clunk. He'd been beaten badly all over his face, the flesh swollen and discolored, the lips split, broken teeth spilling from his mouth. Toilet water streamed out of his hair across the tile. I stepped back, covering my face, trying not to scream, trying not to breathe. I backed out of the bathroom and pulled the door shut after me. There was no one else in the hallway. I couldn't report this discovery either, for the same reason I hadn't told anyone about the girl in the creek. It was too suspicious. Four bodies? No one was that unlucky. But if it wasn't just bad luck, then what? Was I being targeted? Was some killer, what, murdering strangers to mess with me? That didn't make any sense. I'd found the first body on a route I took often, true, but the one in the train station... I didn't have a day job or commuter routine, so there was no way for someone to plan for my arrival. Likewise, no one knew I visited that creek and had gone on a whim. Gary and I went to a half-dozen different bars when we got together and had only chosen this one an hour before our meeting. There was no logical way this was planned, so it had to be coincidence. Unless... No. Coincidence was the only explanation. The bar was crowded... Someone else would have to piss soon enough. Let them find the dead man and report him. The bar bathroom was a swamp of DNA and fingerprints, so there'd be nothing to connect me to the scene. I went to the adjoining bathroom, halfway convinced I'd find a dead body there, too. But it was just the usual horrors of a public restroom. I used the toilet, then washed my hands, looking closely at my fingernails. It had been weeks since I'd dug in the dirt of my backyard garden, but I still felt like there was soil under my nails, some deeply ground-in filth that couldn't wash off. I splashed water on my face and stared at myself in the mirror like a character in the bad novels I'd edited. I'd been losing weight for weeks, and my eye sockets seemed sunken, my cheekbones pronounced, my beard ragged. I was more aware than usual of the skull under my skin. I walked back to the bar and slid back into my stool beside Gary. It only occurred to me then that when someone found the body and called the cops, everyone in the bar would be a possible suspect, especially the ones who left for the restroom at some point. I finished off my whiskey and said, This place is too classy for me, man. Want to get out of here and go to San Pablo? Bar crawl, Gary crowed, and we left before the dead caused any fuss. The next day, after my hangover subsided, I sat down and tried to focus on writing. I had to produce a bunch of marketing emails for an online clothing store's A-B testing, but I was distracted, and it all just seemed stupid. Who cares what clothes you wear when we all end up in a shroud? Dramatic crap like that. I deliberately didn't look at any of the news on the local social sites because I didn't want to know about the body from the night before. Eventually, I went out, planning to get a beer at a nearby happy hour and do some of my own writing, not one of the bars we'd hit the night before, because I didn't want a reputation of that kind of regular. As I walked, I kept my eyes down on my feet, so if there was a corpse in the bushes or gutter or behind the trash can, I wouldn't see it. I made it to the bar with no further reminders of mortality. Inevitably, one beer became three, and then I had to use the bathroom. I waited until I saw someone else go in and came out without incident before going to be myself. By the time I stumbled home, it was after dark. I fumbled my keys at the door, then stopped. Someone had broken the glass pane beside the door, and the door was slightly ajar. I went cold and thought about calling the police, but I didn't want them here. Maybe whoever had broken in was long gone. I'd been away for hours. I didn't have much worth stealing after all. "'My laptop was in my bag on my shoulder, my phone was in my pocket, and my place was small, "'so even a thorough burglar would be in and out quick without much of a show for their trouble. "'Hello?' I called, and then absurdly, "'I have a gun!' "'No answer, and the place felt empty. "'I opened the door and went into the living room, which was intruder-free.' I stepped around the polished stone slab of the coffee table, my finest piece of furniture bought in more promising times, and into the tiny kitchen. No one there. That just left the bedroom and the bathroom to check. I took a big knife from the kitchen and rounded the corner to the bathroom. The burglar was on the floor. He'd fallen somehow, slipped or fainted or who knows what, and he'd hit his head on the bathtub. Blood was coming out of his ear, but his obviously broken neck was the bigger problem. He was young, probably barely out of his teens. Fuck. Fuck. I thought of cops in my apartment, all over my yard, asking questions. My phone buzzed. I looked at it, staring at the first line of the email it displayed. Hi, Mike. This is Brody Jansson. Jan, my landlady I swiped to read the rest Mom came back home from the hospital last night Because she was feeling better But the doctors say it's just temporary Apparently sometimes there's an end-of-life rally And people feel totally healthy right before they go into the final decline She wouldn't listen to us when we told her she should stay in the hospital And told us all to go home So we did You know how stubborn she can be Anyways, we've been calling her all day and she hasn't answered, so I'm getting worried. I was going to drive down from Folsom to check on her, but thought maybe you could knock on the door and go in with the spare key if she doesn't answer. We're afraid she might have taken a bad turn. Give me a call at I closed my eyes. I could see Jan clearly in my mind, wearing her dingy off-white housecoat, collapsed on the kitchen floor or unmoving in her bed, in her bathtub, dead and cooling. I knew Jen wasn't upstairs anymore, not really. Nothing was up there now but her body. I knew. Her son would come, the paramedics would come, someone would see the broken glass by my door, there would be questions. There was no way this ended without questions, and once the questions started, the answers would come. I left the burglar and went into the backyard, underneath the moon, and stood beside the bare dirt by my tomato plants. I prodded the soil with the toe of my shoe. Consequences, I said aloud. I thought about my last date, the random meeting outside the bar, the talk of ghost stories. My awkward, would you like a signed copy of one of my books? I have some at home, just down the street. Her being drunk enough to say yes, us walking down the deserted side streets all weeknight empty her thinking I lived in the whole big house and laughing at herself when I showed her my tiny in-law unit and then turning sad when I told her the landlady was in the hospital. Scrawling to Julia, the nicest surprise I had in years, in a copy of my last collection. More drinks, more talking, reading her one of my stories and trying not to slur, thinking this was it. The kind of thing I wrote about, the chance meeting that changes everything, the kind of thing that never seems to happen in real life, at least not to me. Then, the bad part. Me misreading things, I guess, making a move I shouldn't have. Her scratching my face, so deep. I stayed inside for a week until my scruff had grown into a beard full enough to hide the marks. Me reacting to the scratch out of pure instinct, not intent, not even anger, just pushing back when she heard me, both of us drunk and uncoordinated. Her falling off the couch, her head cracking against the corner of the table. Me trying to wake her, then sitting dazed on a chair for almost an hour, then worrying the cops wouldn't believe it was an accident because I'd waited so long to call. Then thinking of the scratches on my face and realizing they'd think it was murder, or at least manslaughter anyways. Then thinking of my garden, my shovels and spades, the high privacy fence, the landlady not home in the hospital, the convenient dark of the night. I thought of actions when I should have been thinking of consequences. I shook myself back to the present. I knelt beside the dirt and dug down, scooping out earth with my bare hands, until I hit the layer of broken paving stones and bricks and rocks that I'd piled on top of the body to stop animals from digging it up. I lifted enough of that trash out to uncover what was left of the face. Her face. I took out my phone and called 911. The voice that answered sounded familiar. She was the same dispatcher who answered when I called about the man in the alley. Hello, I said. It's me again. I found another body. Then I curled up on the dirt and closed my eyes. And pretended I was nothing but a body myself. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Weird how people always seem to die in groups of threes, huh? Or fives, or 64s, or however you want a group, and really, because there are tons of people, and everyone dies. Thank goodness there's no set rhyme or reason to death, no creepy weird system that haunts or follows us around. Death doesn't choose us alphabetically or anything. But just in case someone remind death that Corden comes before Earl Jones... What does follow us around though are our consciences, and the consequences of our actions, and our credit histories, and mountain lions in some situations. Also that cantaloupe song, Flip Fantasia, from back in the 90s. Remember that jam? Oh. Boom! Jump to the jam, boogie-woogie-jam slam. Bust the dialect, I'm the man in command. Come flow with the sounds of the mighty mic might master. Rhyme and I know like I'm looking a sucker to disaster. Full-cool ducks, but I still rock Nike with the razzle-dazzle. Star, I might be. Scribble-dabble, scrabble on the microphone, I babble. let just get the funky words into a puzzle. Yes, 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 on and on as a flex. Get with the flow, words manifest. Feel the vibe. I'm here to Asia, dip trip, a flip fantasia. Ow, you don't stop. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, get any more of that funky horn. What's that? Catchier than the Covids. All right, let's move on to our 100 character story winner this week, Eric Marsh, with this one here. How do I commit the perfect murder? He asked in a web news group. I'll show you how it's done, was the anonymous reply. 100 character stories, we call them twabbles. Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. We might select yours to be next week's winner and post it out on our Twitter feed at Drabblecast, amongst other social media. If you enjoyed our show this week, remember that Drabblecast relies on your donations to keep going. We pay authors professional rates, we pay our artists, our voice actors, the whole deal. And we appreciate any support you can give. Go to Drabblecast.org and find support options on the right. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer. Check him out at BoKyer.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Bo Kire, Jason Smith, Tom Baker, Melissa Henderson, a carnival dwarf who can't get a date because he always smells like the inside of a cannon, Adam Pratt, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, beards are like push-up bras for men.